Um, we're up to chapter 24 of Genesis. Uh, only 20, chapter 25 is, is left, and uh, the start of 25 talks about Abraham dying. Um, talks about all the other, wi- the other wife that he took and all the other kids that he has and his concubines. We're probably not going to focus on that too much. So um, we'll probably round up today. This is going to be at the, towards the end, very end of Abraham's life. And uh, last week we were looking at what it means to be a stranger and an alien or a foreigner in our society. That's what Abraham said to the Hittites. I'm a stranger and an alien among you. We're going to kind of see a bit of an outworking of what that means what does it mean in one specific example today uh, in, fi- in Abraham trying to find a wife or finding a wife for Isaac? And we're going to look uh, and apply that to our relationships too. So we're going to be focusing on things like what the Bible has to say about who we should marry, what's important in a relationship. In fact, some of what Dan preached yesterday at the wedding of Kat and James, if you were there, ties in very nicely with what I'm going to bring today. Now, we'll see some things in this chapter, 24 of Genesis which will be very specific to Abraham's culture at the time. But we're going to try and uh, see what God's got to say to us uh, about it as well. And some of you might immediately be thinking, well, actually, you know, this isn't relevant to my life. Uh, maybe you are not married. Maybe you are, uh, have been married and you're not now. Maybe you're thinking, well, I found my husband and wife, or wife uh, a long time ago. But actually, this is a subject that a lot of people have opinions about and... Many of those opinions can be godly, um, but I've also heard a lot of unwise things that have been said by uh, Christians about the area of relationships. And so it's good to look and see what the Bible has to say about relationships. Um, people can tend to be very enthusiastic about anything, and uh, we're going to look and see what God has got to say. One book I would recommend... Um, on this topic, because we're not going to be able to cover uh, a lot of things about marriage. One excellent book is by Christopher Ash. It's called Married for God. He's actually written another book as well, I think, um, which might just be called Marriage. That's a big, thicker book, um, a lot more detailed theologically. So if you can wrestle with some of, uh, some of those things, then get the bigger one. But this one is very easy to read for anyone. I would recommend it, Married for God by Christopher Ash. Okay, we're going to read this chapter. It's a very long chapter. Uh, we're going to read it in segments, and we're going to um, miss out a chunk in the middle as well. But we'll read the first nine verses to start off with. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all he'd had, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living. But you'll go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman's unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure you don't take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he'll send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman's unwilling to come back with you, then you'll be released from this oath of mine, only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. All right, so Abraham is uh, 
close to death. He's, he's very, very old at this point. Uh, but he's aware that his son, Isaac, the son of promise, has not got a wife. He's probably getting on to about 40 years old. So uh, fairly old not to have a wife, certainly in those days. And uh, he knows that for God's promises to come about, Isaac is going to need a wife because uh, God has made it very clear that his promises of to him and his descendants are going to come about through Isaac, not through Ishmael. He made that clear in Genesis 17 and verse 19. Your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So Abraham knows that the promises that he's been holding on for all this time, that he's believing God for, they're going to come about through Isaac. Isaac's going to have descendants of his own, but right now he's not even got a wife. So Abraham's thinking, I need to find a wife for Isaac. The problem is um, that they are living in a land full of people who don't worship God. They're living in the land of the Canaanites, as we saw last time. They are strangers and foreigners there. And Abraham is thinking, well, what am I going to do about this? God, it doesn't appear that God's sp- spoken to him specifically about this issue. God's not said, go and find a wife for, Abra- for Isaac. But uh, there is a sense that God has spoken to Abraham so many times. Abraham is walking with God, and so Abraham's acting in faith in what he's going to do. And, he, and we'll see, he doesn't compromise on things. This is to be the last recorded act of Abraham before he dies. All that we hear after this point is that Abraham has died. Now... Today, it might seem very strange in our Western culture to have our parents choosing our wife or our husband for us. Um, and that's what Abraham was doing. You might think, well, why isn't Isaac just finding his own wife? Um, you know, what's going on? Well, we, we don't know the answer to that. Um, he, could, he could well have uh, had ideas of his, his, his own. Uh, it may well be that he was so attached to his mother that until his mother died, you know, he was thinking well, he's a bit of a mummy's boy. Who knows? It doesn't say. Uh, we can speculate. Probably not that helpful. But um, but actually, husbands uh, husbands and wives being found by parents is still something that is practiced in cultures even today in different cultures. Obviously, that can be abused. We've all heard stories of people being forced into marriages against their will and uh, you know, that isn't what happened here. We'll see later on that Rebecca is willing to go. Rebecca is very willing, and she gets the choice. You know, are you willing to go with this servant uh, when he finds her and, and marry Isaac? That's not what we're talking about. So we can just think, oh, you know, old-fashioned culture, not really part of us. We've, we've, we've got our own cultural way of, of dealing with these things. We can find our partners and husbands and wives in different ways. But I would say, well, is, our, is what we have in our culture any better? Does our culture bring us a good model of what it means to find a good husband or a good wife and how to find them and how to conduct that relationship? I would say by no means do we see that in our culture. I mean, maybe up until 100 years ago, parents were still involved in who their children married Maybe a a potential suitor was brought to the house and they were grilled and interrogated by the parents. Lots of questions going on. But since then, society, Western society, has changed. Um, 
magazines, TV, and the internet tell us now what is normal in a relationship, what we deserve, how we can get it. Men and women now get their view of what sex should be like from TV, movies, literature, pornography. Relationships between teenagers are now conducted outside of the parents' home often, or which often increases the likelihood of one of the two, usually the girl, being pressured into taking the relationship further than they want to at any time. In society, we have easy availability of contraception. It's easy to get an abortion, which means that the fear of getting pregnant, which might have had some restraint on couples, uh, is no longer there. And boundaries seem to be increasingly pushed back. Uh, sexual relationship was initially only seen as acceptable within marriage. Then it became okay if you were engaged. Then it, it became okay if you're going out with someone. And now it's increasingly, in our society, becoming okay to have sexual relationship just with our friends or with anyone. It doesn't seem to matter anymore. We can find websites where people can look to have affairs and set up specifically for that. People are getting married later. Fewer people are wanting to get married. The heart of what marriage is is even being redefined by our politicians And children are increasingly being brought up outside of a stable family environment. A report this even this week said that almost half of children are being born outside marriage. And the rate of family breakdown is also increasing. So what our culture has to offer us is not great. If we're going to look to see what a good relationship is about, a good marriage is about, we're unlikely to find it from some of the things in our culture. Now, obviously, I'm not looking primarily to speak to our culture today. I'm speaking to the church, and, we're, and God's word is to the church. And so where we might have opinions and things to say to our society, um, we're, not, we're not coming today specifically to look at that. But we're saying, how does this affect us, who are strangers and foreigners to our society? We don't belong in this place, as we saw last week. So what do we need to know? How do we find out how to conduct godly relationships? Because very easily, our society's culture can creep into the church. And we can find ourselves getting more and more sucked into that way of thinking instead of a godly way of thinking. Even as we prepare for marriages... As Christians get engaged and people in the church get engaged and prepare for marriage, it can sometimes seem as though they're more concerned with the color scheme and the table decorations and the food and the pictures and the video and the PowerPoint presentations for their wedding day than on making sure that their relationship is on a firm and godly foundation. And that's what we're going to look at today, what it is to be on a firm and godly foundation. Sexual intimacy which is God's wonderful wedding day gift for a man and a woman to be enjoyed in covenant relationship, often gets cheapened and abused as we greedily look to experience it way before those promises are publicly made, that covenant is made. When we get married, the Bible tells us that two individual people become one flesh before God. In Matthew chapter 19, we see Jesus explaining this, explaining right back to creation. 
And Adam and Eve, uh, Jesus says this in verse 5. For this reason, a man man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So that is what marriage is about. And Paul goes on and speaks about it later on in Ephesians chapter 5. We've already heard some verses from Ephesians just now. But Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 is, is using the same idea, the same quote, uh, when he's talking to husbands and wives and reflecting on the church. And he says, again, as we are members of his body, the church, verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Jesus on this. He's quoting Back to Genesis, and he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul is saying what marriage is and what intimacy is within marriage is reflected in God's relationship, in Christ's relationship with the church. We'll be hearing about that in a few weeks' time as Dan preaches from Revelation. At the end of Revelation, and the bride comes, and there's a great marriage It's about Christ and the church, but it's reflected in our own individual marriages. And the intimacy that God reserves for marriage is so key. But sometimes we can we can slip into the world's way of thinking about it. You hear people saying, oh, you know, it's only sex. It's not a big deal, is it? What does it matter? Sex is the physical expression of a man and woman's expression of love for each other in a committed covenant relationship of marriage and Paul's saying it reflects Christ's love for the church not a big deal it's a huge deal it's a huge deal so we often need our minds renewing from the mire and the confusion that's all around us so to be honest when it comes to Abraham's involvement in finding a wife for Isaac I would say, whilst we might not want to go wholesale down that line and and set up structures and say, you mustn't find your own husband and wife, I think actually it's a great idea. It's very wise to have uh, godly people's involvement when you're choosing a marriage partner. Because what there's few bigger decisions to make in life. What a huge decision. You're choosing someone who you're going to spend the rest of your life with, who you're going to be devoted to, committed to, become one flesh with. That's not a decision to be made lightly. It's not a decision to be made just on physical attraction. And so to have people's involvement in that, godly people, helping make sure that those relationships are built on the right foundations can be good. So it might be a good idea to ask people, Wise people who know you well, maybe even your core group leaders or church leaders, who do you think might make a good wife or husband for me if you're uh, single and you want a wife or a husband? Or what what do you think about this person before you rush into the relationship? Actually, I'm wondering about this person, this girl or this, 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 this bloke. What do you think? Do you think they would be suitable? Do you think they'll make a good partner for me? Very few people do that. I mean, of course, we're not going to legislate for it. We're not going to say, you must do it. But it's a wise thing to do. It's a wise thing to do. For Abraham, it wasn't a case in finding a wife for Isaac of any wife will do. 
even though Abraham was approaching 40 years old. Sometimes people can get a little older, get to an age where others around them have got married, and uh, maybe they start to think, well, do you know what? I can't be quite as picky as I used to be. You know, I'm, I'm just going to have to make do with someone. I, I was in a, a cafe this last Monday, and I was listening to a conversation. Um, I, was, I was with Debbie, and then she, she went off uh, for a few minutes, and I ended up overhearing this conversation between this, this couple, which probably isn't a great thing to do. But anyway, I, I, I was listening, and it was fascinating. And uh, I, I quickly picked up that this, it seemed to be the first time that these two young people had got together. He he was said he was 28. I know so much detail about this. He said he was <laughs> he was 28. She was I think she was 24. And uh, and actually they were Christians as well. It turned out, which is not good news <laughs> in terms of what what I'm going to say. But anyway, um, he so they're talking and they're asking questions about each other and things like that. And they got into this thing of they got into talking about relationships and just saying, oh, you know. I guess it gets difficult to find people who are who are good people to marry, you know, and, and things like that. And uh, they were saying, I, sp- I suppose you could just rush into any relationship and, and get involved. And the bloke who was the, the 28-year-old, he said, he said, to be honest, uh, when you get older like I'm getting, you lower your standards a bit. <laughs> and, and I saw this girl's face, and she was just like... <laughs> And I thought, this relationship is going nowhere. <laughs> I just went, no! Don't say that! <laughs> oh dear. Abraham didn't lower his standards to a point where it's like, well, you know, you're getting older a bit now. There's not really many options around here. Let's, let's just, let's not be too choosy. Abraham calls his servant and, uh, he makes, uh, he makes a strange, a strange oath with him. Um, it's very odd. You can see why we're not just going with, with the culture of the day. The way that he made this oath was he said, put your, put your hand under my thigh. What apparently that was, was they, there was a cultural thing in those days where, Vows sometimes were made by grabbing hold of the other person's genitals and saying, yeah, this is what I'm, I'm really promising this. And that, that's what, that's what was going on here. It's, it's kind of a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> so like you say, like I said, there's some cultural things here. We're not going to go for this. We'll just, we'll just stick to shaking hands. <laughs> Maybe the servant would have preferred that. We have to do that. <laughs> But that's what Abraham said. Come here, put your hand under my thigh. Take a hold and promise me, promise me that you will find this, this wife for Isaac, but that you will find him. What does he say? You will find her from, not from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living. You'll go to my country and even my own relatives and find a wife for him. And he said, and, and bring her back. Now, the servant's probably thinking, even that is quite a big deal. You know, I've got to go to this land, which is a long way away, and I've got to find someone. I've got to find someone suitable, not just in that land, but among Abraham's relatives. And I've got to persuade her to come back with me to meet this guy she's never met before and to marry him. He's thinking, well, what, 
what, you know, I'm, I'm making this solemn oath. I'm making this, I'm making this solemn oath. Um, how, you know, I, I don't want, I'm being bound by that. But what if she's not going to come back with me? But Abraham's trusting that God's at work here. So he says, look, if she doesn't come back with you, I'll release you from the oath. You know, you're not going to be in trouble about this. But, you know, don't, don't let Isaac go there because he'll just get sucked in. Uh, you know, God's taken us out of that land. So Isaac's staying here. Isaac's staying here in the promised land. We're, we're not going back. He'd made the mistake of going where God had, had told him not to go previously and it, it just didn't work out. So he's, he's believing that she will come to him. Um, so it's a big, it's a big ask. It's a big ask. Why is it so important for Abraham that Isaac's wife is from his own family? Well, it's because of the importance for Abraham of finding a wife who believes. Isaac, Abraham's nephew, Lot, it seems she married someone who was living in Sodom, who wasn't a believer. And we've already seen it previously how, how Lot and his family got sucked more and more into the evil of that society. Abraham was wanting someone from his own family who believed, someone who loved God. And so he was sending the servant back. We see this all the way through the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see it in Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, <laughs> Nehemiah is, is probably one of the least pastorally sensitive guys you are likely to meet. Um, so Nehemiah was, was keen too that the people didn't marry those who were outside of the faith, that the godly people didn't marry those who were outside of the faith. And this is what he did. Verse 23 of Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13, verse 23. He says this, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashod, or the language of one another's peoples, one of the other people, and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. They weren't part of God's people. This is his pastorally sensitive response. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons or to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of these marriages like this that King of Solomon, King of Israel, sinned. This was a big deal for Nehemiah. Nehemiah is seeing people in God's community, God's people, and then they're marrying people who aren't part of that faith community. It's not just a racist thing. He's not saying, you know, speak a different language to us. It's about the faith community. And he's, he's keen that, and he's not just saying, that's not a good idea. He's getting right in there. He's cursing the people who are doing it. He's beating them up and he's pulling their hair out. And we don't take it quite that far. <laughs> but the principle is there. We see the principle all the way through Scripture. The New Testament stresses it further. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we see 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. This verse, not specifically focusing on marriage, but says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Don't be joined together, yoking, like with a uh, cattle. For what is righteous, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Why would they be joined together? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ 
and Belial. What does an unbeliever have in common with a believer? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Um, he's saying, you know, don't, in such an important thing, such an important relationship, if you're a godly person, if you love God, if you follow Christ, if you've died and you've turned away from those things, died to your sins through baptism uh, and, and confessing your sins, why, why be united with someone who is not in the same position? Why be unequally yoked? It's not going to work. In 1 Corinthians and chapter 7, and Paul talking about people who maybe have, uh, have, have been widowed, um, but again, the principle here comes in, verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 7, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. The principle there, not just for those people, but we marry people, if we belong to the Lord, marry someone who belongs to the Lord. Don't marry outside of that. Now, we need to know this isn't legalism, this isn't making ourselves you know, acceptable to God. God makes us acceptable to him through what Jesus has done. But it's wisdom from God that needs to be taken seriously. Obviously, sometimes in a marriage, a partner comes to know God and then has to walk with the pain and difficulty of her partner not knowing God. They, they have to walk that in, in faith. And the Bible also speaks to people in that situation and, and says... You know, the believer shouldn't, shouldn't choose to leave the unbeliever because of that. So don't apply this verse and say, oh, now I believe. I've got to divorce my husband. No, no, we don't do that. Or divorce my wife. <laughs> We're getting heckling. <laughs> I'm not going to preach that one, Wendy, sorry. <laughs> but it's incredibly tough. It's tough. Relationships like that, they can go two ways. Either... Either the, the believing partner ends up having Christ pushed to the margins of their life. Not, not that they don't love God as much, but perhaps they can't get as involved in, as other people in, in, in church life, in small groups, in other activities, in giving, in bringing up their children in the faith, in hospitality. Because obviously they're, they're committed to their husband or their wife and they've got to make joint decisions on those things. And they can't just override them. So, maybe some of those things don't happen much at all, or they don't happen much so that we keep peace in the home. Or, the other way it can go is that the unbelieving partner actually gets marginalized. They don't understand why their husband or wife is now so involved with God and the church and these activities, and they feel maybe they're being pushed out of their marriage. It can be difficult in both places. It can be a lonely place to be. Someone once said, if you think you're lonely before you get married, it's nothing compared to how lonely you can be after you're married. And we need to understand the difficult situation that people find themselves in like this. We need to support them and pray for them and pray for their families and pray for the person who isn't a believer as well. Not just that they'll get saved, but pray for their marriage. Because... It can be tough, and we value marriage. But perhaps it would be a good idea to sit some of these people down who, have, who are experiencing these difficulties with, with, with one or two unidealistic young teenagers, people in their 20s, who just think, oh, it'll all be all right. 
Because actually, it, it's going to be difficult. It might help people not make unwise decisions. Note the Bible says, marry someone who is in the Lord. Not just someone who believes in God. Not just someone who's interested. Not someone who will come to church. It's no good starting a relationship and then putting pressure on them to come to church and to come to faith. If their heart's after God, they, they, they'll have to do that themselves. It's probably even better to, to not even be in the same church if you're in a relationship. But the best thing of all is, is don't go there. There's always going to be people who say, oh yeah, but I know someone who, who, who started a relationship with an unbeliever and they came to know God and now they're serving God together and it's all amazing. Yeah, I know, I think one person, one couple who's done that. But I know lots where it's gone pear-shaped. I know lots where it's gone wrong. We don't prove the exception, but don't prove the rule by the exception. And besides, if you are in a relationship or start a relationship with someone who isn't, isn't equally yoked with yourself, if they don't love God, they're going to find it harder to love you. They're going to find it harder to love you if they don't love God because a relationship involves things like forgiveness. And so much easier to do that if you know the forgiveness of God yourself. It can be harder to even love you if they don't love God. Okay, let's read on in uh, this story of Genesis 24. Uh, verse 10, what, what happens? The servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Nah- Naharayam and made his way to the town of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was towards evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar so I have a drink, she says, and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you've chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I'll know you've shown kindness to my master. Before he finished praying, Rebekah came out with a jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. Obviously, the servant doesn't know this yet. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered her jar to his hands, to her hands and gave him a drink. After she'd given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they've finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the lord has made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring, weighed a beaker and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. And then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, We've got plenty of room uh, of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Okay, so Abraham's servant, he leaves Abraham. He goes to seek this this woman who doesn't know who she is. He doesn't know who the family of Abraham are. 
And he prays. He prays to God. And it's good to pray for the right person to marry. It's good to pray for yourself. It's good to pray for your children that they will marry the right person, a godly person as well. Then what does the servant look for? He looks for someone who is kind and hospitable and who will do more than is asked of them. Um, so he's, he's say, he wants someone who, when he goes up to her and says, can you give me some water to drink? She'll give him some water. And he's looking for someone who's also going to give water to his camels. Now he's got, how many camels? Was it 10 camels? I think he's got 10 camels. Yeah, 10 camels. He wants someone who's going to give water to 10 camels. Now camels are known for being able to drink a lot. So that's, that's a big ask. It's a big ask. It's one thing to say, oh, give me some. And he doesn't ask for that to her. He wants her to, to make that decision herself, to make that offer herself. He's looking for someone who is kind, hospitable, and willing to do more than is asked for them. Abraham himself has already shown this kind of hospitality in Genesis 18. He runs about in the heat of the day, serving his visitors who've come. So it's one thing to give a drink to someone else. It's another to water their camels. It's around 200 gallons of water. 200 gallons of water. And she's carrying it in a bucket. And while she's doing this, because she offers to do it, and it says, while he, without saying a word, the man, the servant, watched her closely. Watched her closely. What's he looking for? Why is he watching her closely? Is it because she's beautiful? He says she's beautiful. Oh, let's just have a look at this girl for a bit while she's going back. No, he's not doing that. He's not doing that. He's looking to see her heart. He's looking to see what is in her heart. Does she have a servant heart? Is her character suited to marrying Isaac? So not only is she, is she going back and looking to marry, find someone who is belonging to the, that country and to that family and who is willing to come back, he's looking to see her character as well. He might just think, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. She's, you know, it's great. But no. He's looking to find the right person. It's important to know. He's seen that she's beautiful. We're told, we don't know if he knows, uh, that she was a virgin. But the main thing he's looking for is what her heart's like. And that's often why it's important to have wise, objective voices speaking into a relationship somewhat. Because it's easy to get taken up by physical attraction. It's good to be attracted to the person you're married to. It's good. You know, we would have concerns if someone came and said, I'm only concerned about their character. You know, I find them pretty ugly, to be honest, but they've got a great heart. No, we're looking for character and for attraction as well. But the character is something that maybe other people can see because we can be a bit blinded by the physical appearance and by the emotion that takes over when we get involved in a relationship. Especially if that quickly slips over into sexual activity, which is a worried sin, isn't a good thing to do. But all too often that happens and people are blinded to character issues. The truth is, those initial physical appearances, attraction, all those feelings will maybe diminish over time and fade. And what's left is that folk are left faced with the character issues. You know, people don't tend to get divorced or separated because they suddenly think, my beautiful wife has got a few wrinkles. 
they get separated and divorced because they're confronted with character issues. There's things that are going on in that relationship which they can't be dealing with. And those are character issues which maybe should have been looked at right at the start, even before. Far better to have seen those things first or have things noted. You know, is, is this person generous? If you're someone you're going to marry, if you're thinking of marrying them, are they generous? Are they kind? Are they hospitable? Are they gracious? Have they got a good attitude towards money or have they just stacked up a load of debt? Have they got a good attitude towards work? Any number of questions that we can ask about someone who we're thinking of marrying. Abraham's servant then asks who she is, and he's delighted to find out. She is the granddaughter of Milcah and Nahor. Nahor's Abraham's brother. So God's led him. God's involved in this. This isn't, this isn't something outside of God. God's led him to the right person who fulfills all of Abraham's criteria. So he goes, he stays at the house. We're going to skip this next little bit because it's uh, there's things, how he's meeting the relatives of Rebecca. A lot of it is a bit of a, a rehashing where the servant tells the story of how he has come up, a, up to this point of meeting Rebecca. Um, but at that point, we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 54 um, after, they've, after the servant spent the night at the house. When they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But Rebecca's brother and her mother replied, let the girl remain for, with us 10 days or so, and then you may go. But he said to them, don't detain me. Now the Lord's granted me success in my journey. Send me on my way so I may go to my master. Then they said, look, let's call the girl and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? So she's being asked. She, she's not been taken against her will. Um, she's got the choice. Will you go with this man and marry Isaac? I'll go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. Then Rebecca and her maids got ready and mounted their camels and went back with the man. And so the servant took Rebecca and left. Now Isaac had been coming from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living out in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who's that man in the field coming to meet us? He's my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he'd done. Isaac brought her into the tent of her mother, Sarah, and he married Rebecca. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I thought he was a bit of a mummy's boy. Okay, Rebecca makes the decision to go with this man who she's only met the previous day to marry someone she's not even seen yet. But she's a godly woman and she senses that God's in this. And this is, like I said, she's making the choice. It's an important distinction to make between marriages where parents or others have some input and forced marriages. And when she gets near to him, she meets Isaac coming towards her in the field. And when she finds out he's the man she's going to marry, she takes a veil and she covers herself. She covers her face. She actually asks, acts more modestly towards him, the person she's going to marry, than she has done with the servant who she's been traveling with so far. So she, she reserves special modesty 
for him. Sometimes, sometimes we can, we can chat to people as we're, as we're preparing people for marriage, um, and it becomes apparent that they've already gone past the stage of acting modestly towards each other. Many of them have got to a point of intimacy which is reserved by God only for marriage. And some of them, as I've said earlier, have kind of said, oh, well, do you know what? We're getting married anyway. It doesn't really matter. But as I was reflecting earlier, thinking like that's actually lost sight of what marriage is. If one or both people want to rush into a physical relationship before vows are made, it suggests that sex has become an idol to them, something that's worshipped ahead of or in place of God. And that isn't just for people who are getting married. That's for within marriage too. Actually, it can become an idol. It can become something. Sex can become something that it was never intended to be. Now, in this, I'm not, I'm not talking about sin, which can, things that can happen on an occasion and, and then repented of and, oh, no, we shouldn't have gone there, we shouldn't have done that. And there's forgiveness by God. I'm speaking of an ongoing conscious decision which God-believing people, Christ-believing people, Christ-followers can make, which can have the effect of just diminishing what marriage really is. It's, it's, it's saying, actually, my marriage isn't as important as all that. My vows, they're not that important because the culmination of what it's about, actually, we're going to have that before. We're going to take that before. But we don't see that with Isaac and Rebecca. We do see uh, them marry pretty quickly. Isaac immediately takes Rebecca and he marries her. And the Bible says, and he loved her. And he loved her, verse 67. I guess there's, there's orders that things can happen in. And uh, as we've seen in our society, in Western society, maybe the order that a relationship runs in is generally... Goes, it goes like this. If it's a romantic relationship, maybe it goes, first of all, sex. Then, perhaps, love comes or strong feelings. Though They might reverse order. And then, perhaps, marriage. We might think a better way, a better order might be love, marriage, sex. But for Isaac, the order was marriage, sex, love. Because he didn't know her. He didn't know her. And that can seem very odd to us. It can seem really odd to marry someone you don't know. And as I said, I'm not suggesting that we do that. I'm not suggesting we marry people who we don't know. But it can tell us something about love. What does it mean to love someone? What does it mean that Isaac loved her? Because love for us can be about how we feel towards each other. It can be about... It can be about our emotions. But a far better word to use for love here is faithfulness. Is faithfulness. Because otherwise, we're going to import what the world means by love. And that isn't what the Bible means at all by love. In Exodus 34, we see something of God's love for us. Exodus 34 and verse 6. It talks about God passing in front of Moses and proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love 
and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's what love is. A God who shows faithful, steadfast love to his unfaithful people. And he's calling us to show faithful, steadfast love in our marriages. He's calling us to forgive sin. He's calling us to forgive each other. He's calling us to show grace in our relationships with each other. Faithful, steadfast love. Earlier, I recommended the book, um, Married for God. And uh, sometimes there's lots of books about marriage. There's lots of books about marriage available. We've probably got lots of books about marriage in our church bookshop. Um, but people can be tempted to buy books which talk about um, maybe a bit more in tune with the spirit of this age. Maybe talk about how to understand our partners a little bit better. And it's good to understand our partners. It's good to understand our husbands and wives. But it can be all about oh how they can know how they can please me and how I can know how I can please them, how I can love them. Um, well, I'm not saying that's not particularly helpful, but uh, there's a quote here which I thought was, was helpful. This says, One Christian marriage course includes in its publicity this statement. Relationships begin when you fall in love. Relationships end when you no longer feel in love. So love is central, but it's rarely fully understood. This course will show you how you can each give and receive the love you need. It will show you how to keep romance permanently alive. That's the kind of course that people want to go on often. That's the kind of book that people want to read. But he says, a more Christian advertisement might read, marriage begins when you publicly promise lifelong faithfulness. Marriage ends when one of you dies. Faithfulness is central, but it's rarely understood. The course will show you what faithfulness means and how to be faithful through good times and bad, no matter how you feel. It will show you how to keep faithfulness alive. I would recommend to those who are married, to find out and to seek what it means to be faithful. How to understood what it means to be faithful. How to keep love alive, which is faithfulness towards each other. Steadfast, faithful love. There might be other things which are helpful as well. But let's not neglect what some of God's heart for marriage is. What God says about our relationships. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. But God is at the centre of our marriage. And let's pray that God is at the centre of our marriages and our relationships within the church, within a people who are strangers and aliens to the world, who don't see things in the same way, who are called to live different lives whilst being very much a part of society. God's very much involved in bringing his plans about and purposes to fruition through Isaac and through Rebecca. And some of us here might be in some of these similar positions. Some of us here might be in Isaac's position, thinking, looking around and thinking, do you know, is there anyone who I'm going to end up marrying at my age? I look around me, I really don't see anyone. Others might be in a situation where their husband and wife, they don't believe, they don't share the same faith as you. And it's causing strain and stress on the relationship. How's it going to resolve? We need to look to God. 
Others will be living with the consequences of previous sin and just feeling life's never going to be able to be turned around. And others might be very aware after hearing this message, maybe you were aware before even hearing it, that they're not living in line with God's words and plans for your life. But maybe you're struggling to see how it's going to work out. Maybe you're thinking, I, know, I think I need to make some decisions here. I need to make some changes in my life, in my relationship. But I don't know how that's going to work out. I don't know, I don't know how that's going to play out. I feel trapped. The truth and the encouragement that God has for us today is that God is able to do all things. God was very much at work in Isaac and Rebecca coming together. He's continually at work in our relationships. He'll continue to be at work in Isaac and Rebecca's life. And we won't look at it, but again, they struggle. Uh, they don't have children. And God miraculously enables that to happen. God's at work. God's living amongst us. If we've made the decision to follow him, to be united with Christ, we've become strangers and aliens and foreigners in our, in our world. But we've got a God who's able to do all things, who we can put our trust in, who will forgive our sin, who will pour out grace and mercy on our life, who will work out the future in his faithful and steadfast love for us and help us to develop a faithful and steadfast love towards each other as we go on in our life as well. So let's pray.